Hello everybody and welcome back to Chatting Like Champions. Today we have a very special episode for you. This is episode 26, the renaissance of Italian football. Myself, Kieran and Alex were lucky enough to be joined by one of Italy's and Europe's finest journalists, Nima Tavaloi Rossari. We are so excited to have Nima joining us and hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we did. Now Italian football used to be regarded as one of if not the best sports product on the continent, with some glorious periods, including the 1990s. However, for the modern football fan, Italian football was seen as a slower league, where players go when they're probably past their prime. As Juventus won nine consecutive Serie A titles, fairly uncontested, the league has failed to live up to its history and lost a lot of potential fans and money from consistent failure to adapt to the new footballing landscape. But last season, this domination was broken by Inter Milan, and European football fans took note. This year, we have a three-horse title race between the classic powerhouses of Italian football, with Inter Milan, AC Milan and Napoli restoring the competitiveness of Serie A that made it so special in its glory days. With Nima's expertise, we explore the array of talent on the pitch, in the dugouts and in the boardrooms that have made Italy's top division one to watch again. But Italy's stadiums are ancient and their TV deals are dwarfed by their continental counterparts. So can Italian football recapture its illustrious history whilst attracting the modern football fan? We're about to find out. I am joined here today by, of course, Kieran and Alex, but we are joined in, we are, well, we're in very esteemed company, should I say, as we are very excited to have Nima Tavaloi Rossari on chatting like champions hello Nima welcome to the chatting like champions podcast how are you I'm good it's good to be with you guys yeah yeah it is We're, we are all excited aren't we guys gonna talk some Italian very, football very yeah very excited um so Nima I first came across your work when uh first from Twitter you know from the Italian football podcast and then I saw you on the Latte Firm YouTube channel um I've got to say your pronunciation of Alexander Isak uh, it is one of the most satisfying things I've ever heard. It's like so good. I, well, I mean, it's, I mean, it's, I guess it's a Swedish pronunciation because he is Swedish and I'm, I'm, just, I'm, I'm kind of, I, uh, I was raised in Sweden from the age of three. So, mm. yeah. So, and then so I saw you on that video and then the Dusan Vlahovic um, video as well. And yeah. I just, I just thought your insights were so good that I had to try Thank and you. get you on. Um, but for those of, of those of our uh, listeners that maybe don't know you, would you like to, introduce yourself and introduce the the vast amount of work that you you do in the footballing world <laughs> well um yeah well my name is Nima Tale Ruzzari I've been working with uh, working covering Italian football for 11 years I started the sempreinter.com which is an English website covering Inter 24/7 I started that 11 years ago um we quickly became the biggest English news site uh, on Inter in the world and we pretty much worked you know non-stop 24/7 since then um previously I did things I did exclusives interviews with for Gianluca Di Marzio also covering you know news for him I interviewed Roberto Carlos for him I interviewed Rafinha who played for Bayern Munich for him etc then I did lots of exclusives for goal from interviews to transfer news um and then uh uh, the past two years, um, I've started. I started the Italian Football Podcast together with John Solano, who covers Roma, and Carlo Garganese, with over 10, 20 years of experience in covering football. He pretty much built Goal.com to what it was until he left. Um, and uh, then, uh, yeah, now and I also do freelance work for Football Italia and Forza Italian Football, mainly transfer stuff. 
whenever I have something. I'm not one of those people who just, you know, likes to regurgitate the news of others as a sort of news <laughs> aggregator and steal other people's news. I find that rather disgusting, to be honest. But um, yeah, so that's what I'm doing. Yeah, I mean, we were impressed. Oh, we were discussing uh, before you joined that. Um, I see how active you are on Twitter. It's, you know, yeah. it's constant news and it's so impressive. We were saying that we can keep up with it but uh it's brilliant stuff so that's why we had to get you on because we're talking thank you all things italian football um i do have to say that our head of sport here at your university radio nottingham doesn't fully appreciate italian football and you know european football so i've enlisted your help so we can try and sell it thank to him you. so he uh, gets <laughs> gets convinced because we're not we're not happy with the some of the comments he makes so I'm gonna try and <laughs> try and make you know uh seria uh, you know describe it the, the best we can because it's a glorious competition and we've really enjoyed watching it this year um, well it is it is the most entertaining league in the in Europe of, of the top leagues by far it is, um, yeah. I think I mean we I, I, I was watching an analysis of goals per game um, and the Serie A has never had this many goals per game since the 1930s 40s it's something up up, up close to three goals per game on average um, wow. it's a very exciting league it's not the best players all play in the Premier League because obviously that's the that's the league where that has the most money. I mean, that's how it was in Italy in the 90s when Italy had the most money. They had the best players. Although it was back then it was prior to the EU and the Bosman ruling, so they only were allowed three foreign players. And so they handpicked the best players mm. out of every league. Um, and uh, so, th- so there's no doubt that the Serie A... Is, is not the best, but it definitely is the most entertaining um, of the of the top four. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, we're going to talk about whether the Serie A can get back to those kind of glory days, as you referenced, from the 90s. And we think it can. So we're first mm. going to talk about the competitiveness of the league this year, especially with the open title race. And we're also going to talk about the identity that's being restored mm. to Italy's top mm. clubs. Um, yeah. We're not going to talk about Juventus too much because uh, us three already did a, a special with Football Daily's Doogie Critchley about Juventus. And we're, well, we'd like to talk about the good stuff. And, you know, Juventus have had a bit of a bit of a downfall so we'll focus on the the other three um and I'm going to talk about AC Milan first uh and a club that resonates very closely with my own Arsenal um for more reasons than just sharing uh the CEO or we used to have their CEO Ivan Gazidis um now the Rossoneri were in a pretty dark place languishing in down the table with no really you know coherent plan a couple of years back uh, however, mm. under Gazidis and Maldini, they've really adopted this, what people have dubbed a German orientated model, focusing on younger talent, nurturing yeah. that and bringing it through. Uh, now, you said on the Alexander Isak video that AC Milan and Arsenal are two of the most exciting young teams in Europe. Yeah. So what has impressed you most about the AC Milan rebuild and how much quality and excitement has it given the league in general? Well, Milan. Look, the the Serie A is an Italian football generally is at its is at its strongest, and and it's a sign of health of Italian football, not just for the league but also the um the, the national team. When Inter, Milan, and Juve are all strong. Now, obviously, Juve after Inter won the treble with Mourinho were on a long, long decline because Massimo Moratti was sold the club. Similarly to how Silvio Berlusconi sold Milan because you know the, the transition to modern football that. The clubs have to be sustainable businesses to some extent. Uh, was never true of Milan and Inter. They had an owner who bankrolled everything, and and when it didn't work, they they sold. Mm. Um, but uh, so they so basically both clubs have had to, uh, via different routes, of course, have had to kind of find their place and their footing 
in the modern football uh, ecosystem uh, and trying to get back to former glory, beginning with domestic success. Um, obviously, Inter is further down that road, having won the Serie A title, whilst Milan finished second and are just back in the Champions League. Um, so they are, they are. It, it is good for it, for Italy to to see Milan back because they have, you know, after Juve, Inter, uh, after after Juve, uh, Milan and Inter are the most you know supported clubs inside Italy and also abroad. Uh, they have a global international fan base. Both clubs, um, of course, Milan having won so many Champions Leagues, having dominated Europe with Arigo, starting with Arigosaki, um, and what they did uh, after that is you know that from Paolo Maldini, Franco Baresi to to Cafu and Shevchenko and Inzaghi, Filippo Inzaghi. So this is you know they are or Kaká as well, of course. So you know, so they are they are they are football royalty uh, historically uh, from the sixties until today. So both clubs are so. It is really important for Italian football for these clubs to find to be successful and be back at the top. Yeah, absolutely. I think you know they've they've been really impressive. I, whenever I watch them, is they're always entertaining. Maybe a little bit too open at times. I mean, one of the Milan derbies I watched was so good this season. Yeah, the the end to end one. I mean, I couldn't yeah, stop the watching first it. one. I mean, it was uh, yeah, it was entertaining, but I mean, tactically speaking, it was an eyesore because. Yeah. It was like watching children. Have you ever watched 10-year-olds play football? It's like a where, where the ball is is where everyone is. And where the ball goes, everyone, like a herd of elephants, go running after it. It was there was no tactics, there were no formation, there was no shape. It was it was really, really, really weird. I've never seen a game like that for 45 minutes where where they just don't understand where these clubs just where both these teams just didn't know what football tactics were and they were just chasing after the ball like children. Um, but I guess it is entertaining to one ex- to one extent, sure. But um, you know, Italy is a league that is still the most tactical league, um, but they do lack a little bit of experience in the European game. I think we saw that also with Por- uh, with with how Porto uh, got you know mm. sought out uh, Lazio and also Napoli against Barcelona. Although Barcelona are not what they once were, they pretty easily were able to. To, to kind of swift Napoli aside. And I think that is also not just down to the quality, but also the experience and pedigree Porto and Barcelona have compared to Lazio and Napoli. That Maurizio Sarri, obviously, after the game yesterday, said, uh, yeah, yesterday said that we are, we're a team that is growing. We're not there yet. Uh, whilst these other clubs are kind of, although they are going through a rejuvenation and a rebuild, they still have pieces in place that can bring that experience and provide that experience and that's a little bit what I feel about Milan that they they you know Ibrahimovic and Giroud kind of are but they're not you know due to fitness issues they've not been able to play on the pitch as much um of of course the importance of Zlatan Ibrahimovic off the pitch has been you know has been under, has been underlined by Paolo Maldini by Stefano Pioli the coach how important he has been for the growth of these young players bringing a professional attitude into the dressing room into training how you live on and off the pitch and that's made a lot of these players improve i mean rafael leao for example talks about how his improvement is is because he's had Slatan Ibrahimovic there mm. like a bigger brother who he listens to the professionalism who he, that he embodies on and off the pitch etc um so and also i think Ricky Massara the, the sporting director um is should, is a, is someone who we shouldn't underestimate he's he's very good at spotting talent um and also i mean let's not forget that milan have been a little bit unlucky i mean or unlucky they've they've had a bit of a mess to handle with Kessie Chalanoglu Donnarumma 
mm. but now it feels that they've they're kind of you know now when Kessia leaves that'll be it you know then they'll bring new players in and the core of the players who are staying are players who want to, who want to stay with them and I you know Teo Hernandez just recently extended his contract I think I think we'll see Rafael Leao do something similarly as well and that's really important given the the mess that the previous management mm. left into the lap which kind of carried over a few years and i'm not that's not to say that maldini and masara did everything right of course not the you know the this the donnarumma and kessia situations should have been handled long long time ago as well as chalanoglu but they didn't uh, but now they are and i think with the with when we're going into the summer and if they sign renato sanchez and and botman i think they've got the the foundations there mm. Together with Tomori, Calabria, Teo Hernandez, Sandro Tonali, Benasser, you know, uh, all these uh, Leao, etc. I think they've got the foundations of something really, really interesting. Absolutely, I think um, you know you've talked a lot about the players. Then you know they've been very impressive. But one of the stories that came out of AC Milan recently is that you know Stefano Pioli was basically on the verge of of leaving or being replaced by. Current Man United boss, yeah, Ralph Rangnick. Ralph Rangnick. Yeah, I mean, now, when he was appointed purely, he was, I mean, the, the hashtag purely out before he even had a game uh, in charge was was trending. And things didn't start off very, very mm. well. Then Zlatan Ibrahimovic came into the fold in the January transfer window and th- they kind of went on this run and they changed their mentality. Um, and of course, it, it, that made it easier to that facilitated the decision to keep Stefano Pioli and not rip the club up by its roots as Rangnick would have demanded. He would he would have liked a complete you know uh, a, a build a rebuild from top to bottom. And Milan felt that we don't really need that. We already have the things in place to kind of build upon youth, but also do it with 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 a way that is in line with the club's history without having to you know uproot everything. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so kind of moving over for, to the other Milan club now, obviously Inter Milan. How impressed have you been with Inzaghi? I mean, it takes a lot to step into Conte's shoes, um, but he did fairly well at Lazio and has really taken this Inter team in an exciting direction. And obviously he's putting them into a position where they're fighting for the title yet again. So how impressed have you been by how he's the direction he's taken this Inter team to? Um, look, Simone Inzaghi, I penned a column for Calcio Mercato's English page in 2017, which was called Why Simone Inzaghi is the Next Italian Supercoach after Antonio Conte and Max Allegri. And, and, I, and I firmly believe that then, and I've only been strengthened since, is because his ability to play, to handle players. He's not a tactical genius by any stretch of the imagination compared to someone like uh, Antonio Conte or, or Guardiola or anyone yeah. like that. No, he's he's much more, his football is more kind of nuts and bolts in that aspect. But what he is very good at is that he knows how, what it's like to be a player. He he knows what kind of football he wants to play. And it, and it is an exciting and difficult football that he wants to play. You know, he he's he's not, uh, you know, he doesn't play the, the vertical football, the calcio verticale that Conte does. His football is much more horizontal. It's about creating triangular numerical advantages in each space and attacking and exploiting space when you pass through it's luring your opponent into these triangles and then playing past them and with and with pace exploiting the space and kind of sawing them through that way um 
but I, I'm, I'm, and also, I mean, he did not have an easy summer. I mean, the, the complete chaos that was after Conte left, then he comes in, Hakimi sold, Luka, then, then the Ericsson's, Christian Eriksen's medical emergency, which came out of the blue, then, you know, Romelu Lukaku deciding that he wanted to leave after saying that he wanted to stay. You know, these were not easy. And, and, and the players that, repl- I mean, the players that replaced any, all those players were not better on paper, and they certainly aren't either. Uh, you know, you can't convince me that Edin Dzeko is a better player in this moment in his career than Romelu Lukaku was. You can't tell me that Ashraf Hakimi is better than Denzel Dumfries. You can't tell me that Christian er- the Hakan Chalanoglu is better than Chris- Christian Eriksen. You know, all of those things um, are true. But what he did do was be able to create a team out of this, out of these pieces that were not as good. He was able to get them to work in the same direction. And the reason he did that is because he built the dressing room of captains. Denzel Dumfries is a captain for PSV Eindhoven. Edin Dzeko was a captain or is a captain for Bosnia. Hakan Çalhanoğlu kind of came into us, you know, he's a leader in the Turkish national side. So he came into, into a team which already had a lot of leaders and a very you know, a, a professional setting and workplace, which Antonio Conte and Luciano Spalletti worked hard to create. So he kind of built and perfected what they did in terms of, you know, creating a dressing room. Now, for, you know, I, I had Inter winning the Serie A uh, before the season began because I still felt that, yes, I think Denzel Dumfries will take time to adapt, but when he does, he'll be good and he's he's been very good. Uh, Edin Dzeko has superseded every single expectation anyone could have had or asked of him at this point in his career. He's 35 years old. He's not supposed to be a player who interplay week in, week out. So the very notion that he is um, doing that is more of an indictment on the management uh, than anything else. But he's been absolutely outstanding with his his goals and leadership and his build-up play and and, and the importance he's, he's, he's provided there with his experience. And and so this so Inter is in a little bit of a transition, and I think and Simone Inzaghi has handled this really really well, or as best as he could. He's made some minor mistakes. I mean, some decisions I would say are are, are wrong, were wrong. His insistence on Joaquin Correa spending 30, 33 million euros on a player who barely gets an assist and a goal in a, in a number ten position was just a wrong decision. I think his decision to to have Matias Vecino and Arturo Vidal higher up in the pecking order over Stefano Sensi, um, it was wrong. And, and I think sending Stefano Sensi on loan as a result of that was the wrong decision. Now, how wrong will it be? Will Inter still win the title? Will they still, will, can they still win the Coppa Italia? You know, that remains to be seen. And, and these, these, these mistakes could prove to be very costly. Um, but again, I mean, the jury's still out on that and history is written by winners. But in conclusion, I would say that, yes, I think his progressive football, I mean, I've always believed and I've been strengthened in that belief this season that I, don't, I can't remember an Italian manager or coach better suited to a, to a top club in the Premier League than Simone Inzaghi, given how he plays, even more so than Roberto Mancini, who, I mean, let's remember who Roberto Mancini was when he played, when he was at Lazio, Fiorentina and Inter. He didn't play this progressive football. That kind of started the embryo of that was laid when he went to Manchester City and he kind of changed how he played and his approach. You know, people watching Italy last summer in the Euros won't, will, will probably will look at him as some sort of Italian Pep Guardiola when nothing could be further from the truth if you look at his career. It's been a development in his, in, in his case. So 
it is um it is one of those things so with with inzaghi that you know i think he this is who he is and he's always played like this his lazio side that he built his ability to 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 develop talent like sergey milinkovic savic to get the best out of you know experienced players like ciro immobile who exploded under inzaghi um etc etc i mean that that is what he is very good at and he's also very good at getting his teams to play some really good football um now some he struggled a little bit defensively but i mean i think again a lot of that is down to inter management not having replaced samir handanovic in an appropriate manner for four or five years now until the point where he's literally imploding in front of our eyes so it's you know the some of it is his fault some of it isn't i think overall i'd say he's done an excellent job so far but again you know in it in football the results are the only, are, you know in the end results are what matters and if he doesn't win the serie that would have been a failure i mean he would have completely thrown away a, a good lead um and 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 the ramifications that that could have that can have well, they're rather serious, but we'll have to wait and see. Again, as I said, it's too soon to make a final conclusion on that, but he's been outstanding so far, yes. Yeah, no, I think us three definitely agree with you on that, that he has done a, an amazing job um, for Inter. So obviously we just spoke about the um, talent factory that they have kind of become and their identification of talent as well. Um, but obviously it's not always been good for Inter Milan. They were quite close. Um, Sooning Holdings were quite close to losing them. Um, not too long ago but they seem to have kind of steadied the ship a little bit been put into a stable financial position to provide the, to well provide that's, the club. that's i, I gotta I, I gotta object a little bit there because there's been so much just bullshit for lack of a better word reported about the soonings ownership per- perpetrated by western media financial outlets who clearly don't know what they're talking about um this very notion that inter were going to be um, you know the Inter were were being uh, you know what do you call liquidated? There was talk of Sooning being liquidated. There was none of that has been true. It's been absolute nonsense to be honest, and and it's been quite frustrating reading this because what happened was that the pand you know Sooning makes their money. Sooning the the, the the holding company makes their money off in real estate and the retail yeah. business. These were two businesses that were hit very hard by the pandemic so what happened yeah, was so what happened was that the chinese government had to go in and save sooning with taxpayer money now when that happens they sooning were not allowed to um spend taxpayer money to pay for billionaire wages of football players which is i mean you just think think if i don't know manchester united goes bankrupt the british taxpayer the government comes in and saves them and people are demanding that they pay Cristiano Ronaldo's wage. I mean, it's insane. Of course they wouldn't do that. So what they what they did was they studied the ship to a certain extent, and then they took out a loan using their ownership of Inter as, a, as collateral to safeguard and secure Inter's finances moving forward. The, the bloodbath that was um, uh, the, the Evergrande, Evergrande real estate thing, that's, that's completely separate, and that's something that, that has not affected Inter at all. And, you know, when you see these outlets, all American and English outlets, British outlets, talking about the doomsday scenario that never was, it's a little bit like, it's a little bit like the WMDs in Iraq. 
it never happened. It's just something that exists in some people's heads. And it's quite frustrating, to be honest, uh, to have to have to, to be to be uh, to have watched all of that and be like, well, none of this is true. You're just destabilizing the club. And the same thing with the with the with the, um, with the offers that, suppo- that supposedly came in um, uh, to buy. Suning were very, were very honest. If you want to buy Inter, it costs you a billion pounds, full stop. Sorry, a billion euros, not a penny less. And nobody came up with that. So there's not been any talks and they're not interested in selling. I mean, this is all so clear. And they weren't weren't actually close to losing um, Inter at all. What they did was they took in Oak Tree, which is a fund similar to how the Elliott Fund owns Milan. And they took out a loan in the same way, but with the difference that you know, they've already planned to pay back this loan and they are already, you know, there is money in the coffers. So they, they're not, you know, they, they've, they've actually done the best of the situation. Now, obviously, a lot of Inter fans are frustrated. Why didn't you sell the club when BC Partners wanted to buy, buy it for 700 million euros? You have 300 million euros of debt that you would have gotten rid of. That becomes a billion. They didn't want that. And that's fine. And it's quite clear that they, they have no intentions of going anywhere. They're working hard on securing the new stadium project to get that built and to pay off the debt from that they've taken from Oak Tree, the 200, 200 million euros at a double digit interest. That's what they were because it was, you know, that expires in two, two years time. And they've also extended and refinanced the bond. You know, they're, they're, they're doing this to steady the ship and to pay off all of this. And at some point they will sell the club, but they will do so once they turn a profit. They will not send sell before. And there's no, you know, rumor of liquidation. There's no rumor of, of bankruptcy. All of that is just flat out nonsense. Okay, that's quite, an, that's quite an interesting insight because obviously the media differences between, like, say, us in the UK compared to Italy... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but it's not just Italy. It's just, yeah, it is. And, and it's quite annoying because Bloomberg has been reporting a lot of drivel, Financial Times and Reuters and, and all these other have been reporting things that just are manifestly untrue because they've been talking about this, the, the financial crisis and sooning losing their ownership stake of Inter and blah, 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 blah for two, three years. But none of it has come to pass. And, and at some point, you have to kind of wonder, well, wh- why are they doing this consistently? Why are they continuing to report this nonsense? Um, and and, and it's, it is nonsense. I mean, there was talk of a Swedish group whom, you know, that, that absolutely has no interest whatsoever in sports. They work with, with in, 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 in tech entirely. And there was, they, they were spreading rumors that they wanted to buy. And I happen to know people involved in and about there and in there who just laughed when I called them saying this is absolute nonsense and and this is the kind of thing that they've been doing for for two three years but of course it's it's become less and less you know you have the occasional you know clown on twitter who keeps beating in the horse that oh uh, the the Mohammed bin Salman is going to buy Inter. and it's like yeah whatever you know any people do anything for social media clap that's you know you just laugh at that and move on but as that has been, you know, it's been denied by pretty much every director at Inter. It's been denied by Amanda Stavely, who 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 knows, who I think, a thing or two about the PIF group, given that she's kind of heading that when they bought Newcastle. She said that, it, you know, her exact quote was that Italian football is structurally a mess, which it is um, in terms of for, for investors, from an investor's point of view. 
So it's not true. And yet they just keep on going and on and on and on. And it just at some point you're thinking, well, you're not reporting anymore. You're just you're trying to bang something into in, in, into existence. And, and that raises a lot of questions, which which are rather disconcerting, to be honest. Right. Now that we've covered uh, two of the perpetrators in the tight race, let's move on to Napoli now. Um, in the British media, there's a lot of negative sentiment surrounding De Laurentiis. And from a British perspective, he's, he's always portrayed as um, a stubborn negotiator whose ego gets in the way of uh, Napoli's success. But in Italy, is he seen somewhat differently? And do Napoli fans like him? Well, Napoli fans who understand football like him, but of course you're going to have the, you know, every village has its idiots. Um, as an Arsenal fan, I'm sure you know who they, who I'm referring to, given that they're a global phenomenon. Um, but, uh, but to be honest with you, yeah, Aurelio De Laurentiis, ever since the day he bought Napoli when they were in the third, fourth tier of Italian football, under his guy, under his guide, they have turned a profit every single year. He's built a sustainable model and they have played in Europe every single year since coming back to the Serie A. That's outstanding. No one has ever done anything that comes close to that kind of consistency with Napoli. Um, the fact that he, his ego has absolutely nothing to do with it. What he says is he has a budget and either you pay his and, and he keeps his budget. And if you want his players, you pay what he wants or they do, or you don't get them. And if the player kicks off a fuss, then he'll enjoy the rest of his contract being a tourist in Naples. It, it's That's how he does. He doesn't mess about. And he has every right to, to do that. And he is secure. I mean, again, he has secured the, you know, that, that club to being a contender in Italy, to playing in the Champions League, to playing in the Europa League. And this year, though, once again, in unexpectedly challenging for the title, which is something that no one expected. It's Luciano Spalletti's first year. Um, so, and, and they didn't sign anyone. I mean, when he, you know, I've been trying to kind of beat that into existence because I've looked at that squad and, and looked and said, look, Luciano Spalletti, this team was built for Spalletti. And when Spalletti came, he said, I don't want any players signed, just don't sell anyone. And now moving forward, they're, they're most definitely going to finish in the top four, which will, you know, give them revenue. COVID restrictions are disappearing, so they'll be back at 100% capacity anytime soon. Um, and what he's also done, which is absolutely outstanding, is when, the sh when he realized that he needed to create a new revenue streams, he invents that. For example, with the shirts, they, you know, most clubs, they get paid by Nike or Adidas or whoever to, to you know, and they run this, the selling of their shirts and they get paid a lump sum per year. De Laurentiis wasn't happy with that from with, with the previous service. So instead, he decided to create wholesale everything from the fabrication, design, and, and distribution. So he got Amazon to do the distribution out of Naples. He got, he got Giorgio Armani to do the design and to sew, sew, the, sew the kits. And so they own everything from start to finish. And they've produced some amazing kits. I think they've released six, five or six kits this season, or all one is more, you know, cooler than the other. And 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 sure, it doesn't. Maybe it's not a guarantee of 10, 15 million in revenue in, um, but that's more down to you know. Then you have to be better at marketing and selling. Um, but but the number of shirts they've sold are pretty much, if I'm not mistaken, the numbers I saw they're pretty much consistent. And the difference is that he's created that he's keeping all that money in house. 
Um, and, and, you know, that's what he does. The same thing with the, with the image rights that he, of players that he never, that he wishes, that, he, that he's very hard on because he knows that in this ecosystem, he needs to survive and it has to be sustainable. Um, and so Napoli don't risk anything. And it doesn't matter who it is. Lorenzo Insigne, pushing 30, born, born, in, born and bred in Naples, the team's captain, asking for wages that Napoli can't afford. Well, then they just get rid of him. You know, it, it's it's like that. It's it's the club above everyone else, and it's funny because that's exactly how Juventus operate, and they've been very successful in Italy. But when he does it from Na- in Naples, it kind of because he's an eccentric character, it kind of becomes a little bit oh, his ego's in the way. But that's you know, look at how Juventus treated Alessandro Del Piero. Nobody's bigger than the club at Juve, and that's a sign of health at a club. And the same thing should I think the same parameters should then apply to Napoli and Aurelio De Laurentiis. Yeah, uh, fantastic. It's nice to see him rule with an iron fist and kind of do it right. But um, you just t- touched on Spalletti. There's, um, there was lots of media coverage about how, how the Premier League are acquire, acquiring great quality managers. But I actually think over in the Serie A, you've, you've got even, an even bigger, lar- a larger mm. talent pool of coaches. You look at, um, I'm just going to list off some names, Allegri Pioli, Inzaghi, Spalletti, Mourinho, Sari Gasparini, De Zerbi, Igor Tudor, Ivan Juric, mm. Alessio Dionisi and Targo Motta. There's just... Fantastic coaches there. Is this like a revolution for Italian football? It is. I'd say tactically it is because it's kind of made, it it started a few years ago, but now you, and this is part of the reason why the Serie A is so exciting and and, and such an entertaining league. You are, you you know, Vincenzo Italiano, Dionisi, Inzaghi, uh, Giampiero Gasperini, you know, Spalletti. These are, these are very, you know, attacking minded coaches, but they're also, in, in Spalletti's case, they're also they provide defensive stability as well. I mean, Napoli are the team that have conceded the least, not just because they have good players, but also because he knows how to build and organize a defense. Spalletti, this is what he does. Um, so, so no, I, I, it's really interesting to see. I agree with that. I think this new, new these 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 coaches, the tactical battles, they kind of main you know in, without you know speaking too broadly. The, the, the general idea, I'd say, is that they kind of maintain and preserve the Italian tactical defensive solidity and organization, but they're also becoming much more attacking minded and much more progressive and trying to find their way and balance in that to perfect that. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, we've all enjoyed watching them and you see a, a new team like Torino or Sassuolo come and challenge and I watch Sassuolo go to Inter and beat them uh, away from home yeah. and you, you look at all the coaching excellence, it is it is really great, but we're yeah. going to move on to whether the Serie A can become the next best league on the continent, because we think it can. And mm. we're going to talk about foreign investment first, because um, I think in Forbes' 2021 Most Valuable Clubs, there was no Italian team in the top no. 10. You no. finished 11th or were ranked mm. 11th in that. But mm. we've had a lot of American ownership, I discovered, when we were researching this. You've yeah. got uh, Roma, AC Milan, Fiorentina, Spezia, Venezia, Parma and Bologna. Atalanta have just, uh, I believe, sold 55% uh, to an American investor. I mean, what does all this American investment do for the league? And do you think it kind of is good for the league? Or do you think, you know, some some people or some influence is being kind of eroded because it's all going to kind of one continent's rich richest? Well, that's the thing, though. They're not they're not just Americans. I mean, in, in Bologna's case, it's an it's an Italian Canadian ownership mm. in, in in all of those cases almost all of them they're Italian Americans meaning they are the children of 
or the children of first generation immigrants, or in, in Rocco, Rocco Comiso's case, uh, Fiorentino, the Fiorentina owner, first generation immigrant, you know, mm. who, who, left the, who left Calabria as a child, extreme poverty, and then went to New York, became a, you know, built his business up, became a billionaire, and then returned to Italy. Um, I think this, you know, Joe Tacopina, the, the U.S. super lawyer, one of the best lawyers in America, one of the best criminal trial lawyers in America, he's, he, he bought Venezia, Bologna, he was involved in Roma, he was involved, and now he owns Spal completely and, and is building quite the team there. Look, these guys understand Italian culture. They understand also, but they also have this American business mindset of sp- in sports. So the way, I mean, I've interviewed Joe Tacopina many times, and he always comes back to this, that Italian football clubs were used as social cur- for social currency purposes. And his idea is, well, they're undervalued properties, and you can still use them for social currency purposes, but there's no, there's, it's not mutually, you know, exclusive uh, that, you can have it both ways. You can also have run a viable business. One does not exclude the other. They're not mutually exclusive. So that's why I think that you see so much in interest from American owners because they are undervalued properties. And they also, the Italian, I mean, in the Serie B, you have Matt, Matt Rosetta and the North Six Group who, who own Ascoli and doing an excellent job there. Look, they, they know what this is about. They're Italian-Americans. They understand the history, the culture, the language. They know what it means. Italian football is something they love, and they're not there just to make money. They want to make money, of course, but they also love the country, the culture, they, and, and, they, and they understand that to a certain extent better than people from other countries do. And so I think that's a good thing for the league because what they will bring into the Serie A and the Italian football ecosystem is a professionalism and a mindset, a business mindset that, to be perfectly frank with you, the league completely lacks. It's, it's run by a bunch of dinosaurs who barely know how to use the internet. I mean, if we just, just, just a simple example as to, the, as to how the English account of the Serie A is run. I mean, it's, it's a joke. I would say it's a joke, but it's not funny. It's it's someone who doesn't even speak English, basically with Borat English, tweeting out the most incoherent gibberish from the official Serie A English account. I mean, that's the level we're at here, right? Um, and also you have the, you know, the local municipalities and the politics surrounding that in building new stadiums, which I think will improve because now after the, when we enter the, the post-pandemic world, it'll be very difficult to try to sell to the local population that you don't want foreign investors investing in 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 real estate and in businesses that that will bring new jobs and investment into the area making it more attractive for tourists i think that's a pretty hard sell to sell whether it's in milan or naples or wherever it is but and i think that's a good thing um and i so i'm i'm pretty sure that they will finally start moving um you know obviously juventus have that advantage because they own their own stadium um, and and more and more clubs will do that. Inter and Milan will get that stadium built sooner or later. Um, they just have to, you know, it just has to go through this ridiculous uh, bureaucratic uh, process that they're going through. But it will get done eventually. And when it does, it'll be like, you know, the same thing will happen in Naples and Florence and Rome and all these other places. And there's no doubt in my mind that it will happen. Um, it's just, um, yeah, and, and that's, that's, the, that's the fundamental, that's the most important piece for Italian clubs to be able to compete, is to own and operate their, their stadiums 
365 days a year because it opens to new revenue streams, which they can then strengthen their clubs and their infrastructure. Um, so yeah, there's lots of work to be done, but I don't, I think, you know, uh, and then you have the TV deal, which I think will be an extension of that later on. Once you have all of that done, once these clubs realize that the way to move forward is to maybe, if not do what the premier league clubs do, because you can't, you know, because they, you know, they, they just hand that over to an entity who runs it and sells it and maximizes profits. Okay. You don't want to do that fair enough, but what Spain did, which, which took the, the bid that Italy didn't, which was create a media company and all the clubs in the Serie A and the Serie B own a piece of that, uh, own equity in that um, in that media company um, in terms of ownership and voting rights and et cetera, and also revenue sharing. You know, the big clubs in Spain were against that, the Barcelonas and all that, because it's not good for them in the short term. But it's absolutely a fantastic deal for Spanish football in the long term, because it'll, it, it will create a much more sustainable and stronger, stronger financial system and, and, and platform for Spanish clubs to thrive. And I think Italian football will understand that when you get more of these entrepreneurs who both understand the culture, but also understand how business works, that can only be a good thing. You just need you need they just need to be patient and diplomatic um so pretty much the complete opposite of what Rocco Comiso has done at Fiorentina where he's picked a fight with everyone under the sun and and it's like yes Rocco you may be correct that if it's your money you decide but you also have to understand that you're a guest in the city of Florence that is run by the municipality and the people there you have to be more diplomatic you can't just barge in like a bull and say, well, I want to invest lots of money and be like a loud tourist because that will just piss them off and you'll run into trouble. And they're, you know, and, and, and that's what's happened to him. But I feel that he's kind of starting to come around a little bit. Um, so we'll see. We'll see. But I do think that the future is bright. I just think that, you know, change in Italy comes slowly, if at all. But once it does, it, it really does. Yeah, you kind of touched on the whole um, stadium situation with the San Siro there. Um, obviously, it was announced and set to open in 2027, wasn't it? Um, yeah, it looks like a magnificent... They said they wanted to do it for the for the Milan Olympics in, in 2026, Winter Olympics. That's not going to happen. Yeah. That you know, There's no chance of that happening, given that you know they, they're still wanting to have a public debate and a public vote and all that nonsense. So that's not going to yeah. happen. Um, but we'll see. I mean, Inter and Milan are saying 2027, but we'll see. Yeah, it, it looks like a great plan for a stadium. However, Pavan would be um, very well. He, he'll know about um, moving from stadiums very well. Obviously, Arsenal fans were promised a better future if they move from Highbury to the Emirates. And it, it's, I think he'll back me up here. It's not been the move that they were promised. Um, yeah. And but how big... Ivan Gazidis promised it, but it's okay. This this plan might go better. I, I do think. Yeah. So, how big of a deal is it for the Milan clubs and Italian football as a whole to have a new centerpiece for its football to be played? And do you think other clubs may follow suit, um, like revamping their stadiums in the future? It's fundamental for the for Italian football to compete on a global stage. They have to revamp them. They have to make them more modern and more appealing to human beings living in the 21st century. Um, these monstrosities, although they're pretty to look at and they have kind of a historical nostalgic value, are absolutely horrible to visit. Um, you know, from the toilets to the to buying a simple beverage when you're there, 
it's like something from an from a night from the 1950s and 60s and 70s it's absolutely atrocious it's not a nice experience you go you know people go there despite of all these things um in spite of not because of um and because the atmosphere is fantastic and and everything surrounding it is fantastic but you know i don't i don't understand this 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 ridiculous reactionary re, reaction of, of some people of saying things like well you know italian football is is real and and it's going to be we've got to keep it real and close to people and blah 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 look i don't i don't understand why building new stadiums automatically means that football is sold out look at germany they're mostly owned by fans and they all have new modern stadiums they have the highest percentage attendance or they had before the pandemic in all of europe there's I, there's no conflict here if you do it properly sure if you do what the premier league has done and outprice so that fans can't get in that's different but that doesn't have to be the case that's choice that you make um and you don't have to choose that as german clubs have shown so you know it's at the end of the day it's it's a choice but it's a fundamental piece that is that until it's addressed italian football will never re return to its former glory at the club level it's just impossible and i guess to see or for you know people who can't make the stadium you'd like to be able to watch all these grand uh, you know matchups on tv and the Serie A TV deal was one of the lower oh, ones out of God. the, I mean, you know, your face says it all, but would you just like to explain, you know, the situation with the TV rights and I mean, just, getting a bigger just, deal? just well, it's not even just getting a bigger deal. It's just the incompetence surrounding it. They sold it domestically to the zone who launched an app that constantly crashes and lags. So people can't even watch it living in Italy, let alone abroad mm. in the middle East. They ended up being because of their deals with, the deal they did with the Saudi Arabia and Saudi Arabia who ended up in a, in a, in an pretty much a conflict with Qatar, basically, you know, all, all that nonsense there ended up in nobody wanting to touch the rights in the middle East. Um, the, the deal, you know, they, they've sold it to, to, you know, they have buyers in, in, uh, in, in all over the world. But the problem is that the amount of money you pay, it's, it's in the low end, but it's not worth the money that people pay to, to buy it because they don't make their money back. Um, you know, and, and that's why people don't want it. Um, and, and, and they don't, they, they prefer not to bother not to do it. I mean, the business model is so outdated. Um, and, you know, I look, I personally think that this is, you know, we live in a digital age. This is the 21st century. Everyone has an app. Um, I don't understand why the, why the city just doesn't produce everything in-house, create a media company, produce everything in-house in English and Italian, Everyone has an app. Everyone has a Chromecast thing. You just, you know, you, you, you do it that way and you own it all the way. You sell it directly to the consumer because everyone who has an iPhone or an Android can buy, can, can buy a season membership or a monthly membership to the league. Like that's one way to do it. No one has done it like that before. Um, you could do it. And then you also produce, you know, a studio for the international audience in English and whoever does it in, 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 in Italy as well. I mean, you know that's one way to do it but then you know domestically you have the zone who can't even get an app to work uh so how are they going to do that i mean this is what i mean there are structural you know this is what amanda stavely meant when she said that italian football is structurally a mess and i know a lot of people who love italian football like myself 
I love Italian football, but I'm not blind. I see the problems. I see the mess. I don't think you can love something if you worship it. Worshipping is not love. That's obsession. And Italian, I love Italian football. I want it to improve. So that's why I criticize it where, where it needs to be criticized. And I don't just talk, criticize for the sake of. I say, well, this, you need to improve this. And so do, you know, these are things they need to improve. And they have to improve in order to survive. And I think they will in the end. I think at, in the, at the end of the day, progress is slow, but it happens. Yeah, uh, and talking about getting more money into the league, I, I actually read an article the other day that said the Serie A were interested in planning a postseason tournament in the USA for players not on international duty. Is this like part of a wider initiative to to build, um, you know, a core viewership, especially with Americans considering their Italian cultural roots? And yeah. is this a, a good idea? Well, I mean, they already kind of did that with the International Champions Cup to a certain extent. I think more stuff like that is good because the there is a like you said, a giant Italian-American uh, and Italian-Canadian heritage, uh, which creates a lot of interest around these clubs. So I think that's an absolutely brilliant thing to do. All these kinds of things um, are fantastic for the league to grow the league and also, you know, increase their revenue during the off-season when they're, when they're invited to participate in these tournaments. Um, so, yeah, sure. I mean, why not? Um, absolutely. I But, I mean, the one I think you're referring to was the one that was going to take place during the world cup fifa world cup which is which is just to me that's just you know fine whoever wants to go and watch it i'm not going to watch it because i couldn't care less it's the world cup going on right then um and i think most people globally will do so but and also the players who are not called up for the world cup it's not exactly like the biggest stars are gonna are gonna be there are they so i don't know i mean that's something for them to work out i guess but personally i don't i'm not too excited by it but you know whatever uh Anything that promotes the league, I guess, is a good way, is good for the league. Yeah, so kind of moving on to more miscellaneous questions, it's not really extremely focused around Italian football. I think some of Alex's are a bit later on. But um, my kind of question is, do you have an interest in any clubs outside of Italy? Uh, any clubs that you follow outside the Italian league? Yes, I have two, uh, I have two clubs that I support. Uh, and that's IFK Yotobori, IFK Gothenburg, my home team town. Um, and Inter, who I've supported some, both clubs since I was like six, seven, eight years old. These are these are the only clubs I actively support. But then I, you know, I also have teams that I follow because they have an interesting story. Like in Bosnia, uh, FK Zelyaznica, who have a fantastic. It's the the train, uh, the railway, the railroad workers' unions football team. It's, they have a really interesting history. Um, I'm fascinated by the history by history of of uh, West Ham and Liverpool and, and of course, Spurs and Arsenal. And I mean, I, th- I think there's so many clubs and, and also, of course, in, in the, you know, Borussia Dortmund and Schalke in Germany. Um, there's so, you know, so I, I wouldn't say I support them, but I do. And, you know, and also obviously in the MLS, I think Toronto FC has a really interesting story as well um, that they have given that, you know, Toronto is one of the few places in the world that has a old school kind of little Italy uh, Woodbridge, it's called, um, still to this day, uh, which is, I, you know, there are so many interesting stories that I'm fascinated by, which I follow, but I don't say, I wouldn't say I support them. I support two teams on, mm-hmm. at club level, and that's IFK Gothenburg and Inter. Yeah, just um, on Italian culture, what is it about Italian culture that means players are not so keen on leaving after they join the league? For example, Carrera, as soon as he left the league, he wanted to go straight back. Jorginho as well. And many Italian players, um, past and present, you know, that they weren't keen on going abroad. They kept within the league, like um, 
players like Baggio and now players, Italian players, they rarely go abroad. What is it about the culture that, you know, keeps them in Italy? <laughs> the only way I can answer that question is, have you been? You know, um, once, once to yeah, Naples, I mean, yeah. Sardinia. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's a beautiful country. Every, from top to bottom, it's a beautiful country. It has its problems, but the food is ex- outstanding. <laughs> uh, the you know the food, the 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 weather, the I mean, it's a it is uh, you know being rich and famous is nice no matter where you live. But I mean, it's it's pretty it's nicer in Italy. I, I'd rather live there if I were a rich and famous footballer than than anywhere else. Um, I'd say, I mean, there's really no way to describe it other than that. And also because Italian football is so, it's so big and it's genuinely big. Everybody follows it and loves it and has, you know, you talk football every single day, everywhere. It's part of the everyday fabric of these communities because Italy's only been a country for roughly 150 years. It's so it's, it's, there's a lot of local patriotism and your region is the identity that you have is your food, your dialect, your history, and the football team of that region or place in particular in question it becomes an embodiment of that. Yeah, and, and lastly, just quickly, um, Esposito is a player I love. Um, having in a Basel. successful loan, yeah, a successful loan at Basel. Is there a pathway into first team for him? And um, just about Cesare Casade, who I've been reading about recently. Um, you know, these are two players I'm interested in. Do they have a chance uh, to feature for Inter soon? I think, I think for Esposito, the problem with Esposito is that he's not. He's he's having problems, and he's and he seems to have a little bit of a little big boots a little bit too big for him like he's got a big head now and and he's he's causing all sorts of problems in Barcelona which is which is strange because you know you're he and he's you know made a mea culpa on several several times uh that you know he's going to sort it out but then again he has another fallout he has another argument he needs to sort himself out and realize that he's not the superstar yet they're far from it um and 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 a first team at Inter? No, I don't see any first team route for him. I think Inter, pretty much. I mean, if I'm not mistaken, they sent him out on a loan with an obligation to buy, but they have a buyback clause. So I'm not sure he. You know, if he returns to Inter, he'll probably be be sent away pretty quickly. Uh, as for Casadei, I haven't seen Casadei enough to 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 say, but I do see that people are really excited about him, about Kevin Zeffi, the Irish wonder boy um in in um in this primavera side so no they you know they have some talents but it's it's a big step and that's final step to go from the youth team to the first team of any club let alone at a club that is fighting for the Serie A title yeah absolutely um just one question i'd like to squeeze in here uh, really quickly is um pep guardiola's gone around you know most of europe's top 5 leagues and you know normally going to dominate them i just want to get your opinion on if you if you'd welcome you know, Guardiola coming to maybe a Juve once his time up at is once his time is up at Man City or would you know you want do you think that that would maybe limit the pathway for the great Italian coaches that we've talked about before? No, I don't think so. If anything, it'll just Pep will come there and learn um, the more than he you know like Mourinho did. Like every other foreign coach has ever come there says that they've learned a lot and they mm. they they are a better coach for it after having been in Italy. I don't think Pep will go to uh, to Juve. I think Juve have realized that 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 the identity crisis they had with uh, trying to be a Galactico team mm-hmm. is not who they are. 
Um, at Juve, it's about winning. It's about risk minimization, you know, calm, order, organization, and winning. If Pep were to come to Italy, I'd, I'd see him more at Milan, who have a history of playing entertaining football and, you know, the Hollywood superstar mm. kind of thing that's ingrained in, in who they are. At Milan, it's about being, a, you know, it's about glitz and glamour more. Inter and Juve aren't like that. They're different clubs in terms of DNA historically. Um, if Pep got, but I mean, again, people just, you know, one of the things that really, really grinds my gears about the coverage of Pep Guardiola at Man City, have you seen the amount of money he spent to get them playing like that? Mm. I mean, the net spend that he has just in three, four years, five years, is that is the gross national product of a small country. If you spend that kind of money, you will, you should be able to expect success. Um, just on fullbacks and wingbacks alone, how much has he spent? I mean, it's ridiculous. He won't be able to do that in Italy. Mm. That's just not going to happen. So if he were to come to Italy and expect Milan to spend something stupid, then that's going to be an absolute disaster for everybody involved. Um, but I do think that it would be interesting to see him come to a Milan, but Milan will have to be able to be a team that 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 kind of that can challenge, hmm. that can challenge for, for, for titles. Otherwise, I don't think he's interested. And also, Zlatan Ibrahimovic will have, have to have left the club <laughs> because they, they're, they don't exactly love each other, those yeah. two. Yeah. Um, well, Neva, it's been brilliant having you on. I've had so much insight. Uh, thank you for, for opening our eyes <clears> to the, the inter-ownership and we'll, we'll make sure not to listen to any of that, any of that no, nonsense it's, anymore. No, it's, 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 it's so exaggerated. I mean, you know, having the, their coverage so far has been absolutely awful and, and just lies mm. um, because none of it has come to pass. Everything they've said was going to happen has not come to pass. So I would maybe be a little bit reserved there. Mm. But when it comes to um, what will happen in the future, we don't know. I mean, at some point, Suning will want to sell, but it won't be unless it's on their terms. And their terms are very clear. One billion euros in cash. Yeah, well, I think, uh, you know, we've talked so much. We, you know, we could probably go on yeah, even longer, but, you know, you're a busy man <laughs> in the world of football journalism. But me, uh, Kieran and Alex have, you know, really loved having you on. We hope you've enjoyed My pleasures. it. Absolutely. Pleasure was all mine. So there it is. Italian football is certainly making a return, but major structural changes are essential to rival products like the Premier League. After hearing Nima's insight, are you tempted to give it a go or still a bit sceptical? Let us know via our social media pages at ChampionsURN on Twitter and Instagram. And to find more of Nima, make sure to drop him a follow on Twitter. We promise you, you won't be disappointed. We can't thank Nima enough for giving us the opportunity to speak to him and give us a couple pages from his encyclopedic knowledge of Italian football. That has been season two, episode 26, the renaissance of Italian football. Thank you for flying chatting like champions and we'll see you all again next week.